Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 128 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday afternoon, July 17th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. We're back. We're back. Man, it's been a while. I missed you. What's been going on with you? Well, I I think I've traveled farther, but I think you've had more fun. Oh, I definitely, I don't know exactly what you were doing, but I had a blast because I had a nice little family beach trip with a sort of an extended family reunion with about 12 of us in one house. And what, what can be more fun where like, you know, eight of those or, let's see, yeah, six of those were young children. Yeah, you and I have different definitions of fun, but you know, whatever <laughs> works. Um, there really ought to be a word for that's not quite vacation, that's not quite trip that describes what it's like to travel with your entire family. Those are work trips. They're tr- Those are particular work trips. I like that. Family work trip. <laughs> full family trips are work trips for but, families. But the thing is, like work trips. Actually, I mean, this is this is you know, Karen's on to my great secret. Like work trips are actually now the best, right? Like, you know, well, like work work. Like, oh, it's like paid work trips. Right. Yeah, like, the paid you know, work. Like you know, um, you know, sleep sleep by yourself all night, right? You know, don't <laughs> worry about getting up in the morning to no, that is change a, a diaper. Or, every every new parent knows the guilty pleasure when they take a work trip and discover like oh I'm sorry such, I'm sorry honey I'm so I got rested. invited to the symposium in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. Uh, the family work trip is is yeah, a different indeed. thing. It's not restful, but it is awesome. We had great memories. The the uh, the hurricane that blew through the Gulf and ended up going Barry. up through yes going up through Louisiana had a weird effect on the Texas coast kind of calmed the waters ah. and sort of took some of the fun out of being on the beach those days especially when the jellyfish floated in but then it went away <laughs> and the waves were great and we had a great time uh, I'm happy to report to your listeners that Bobby is tan uh, yeah I, you know I was very careful with the sunscreen no burns well well no done. burns I I on the other hand am in my usual Yale pale yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase, but it immediately resonates. Oh, I can yeah. see that. Um, and it's apropos. So, uh, shockingly, uh, having not recorded in, what, two weeks, it's, two and a half yeah, weeks? Yeah, since I think July 1st. We have some stuff. Some stuff's happened. We got. It's been relatively quiet, but there's more than enough to keep us going through our usual, what, hour and eight minutes, most likely? Uh, Is that well, our average? Relatively quiet, except for the fact that the president's a complete whatever. Well, <laughs> finish the sentence on your own. Fit, uh, you could do like some sort of Trumplandia Mad Libs. Is that what you're proposing? Oh, I could, but it's just, it's just, it's so. Actually, I, I encourage uh, some intrepid listener to, to whip up a quick Mad Libs for this show. <laughs> that, uh, not the whole thing, but you know, just a standard Mad Lib. President page. Trump has blank a blanked blank. No, Steve shouted blank, you know, put in an uh, you know, interjection. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's got a lot of legs. I look forward to seeing some examples of that. Indeed. Uh, even better if you send us a blank and then fill one out. What fun! That's that's a fun drinking game if I've ever heard one right there. Drunk uh, or kids? <laughs> you, you know that game, right? Like you know, what? you describe a particular behavior and you ask whether that's a drunk adult or a kid. Right? There's a lot of overlapping. So picked up, space picked up, in those picked up food and threw it at the wall. Drunk or kid? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Are we at the pancake house? That doesn't narrow it down a lot, but it. Depends on what time of day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is, it, is it 11 a.m. or 11 p.m.? All right, so one college story. Um, there was a pancake house. <laughs> this this is just something I witnessed. I was not the perpetrator, but there was some you know pancakes being slung around. But this is one of those places that had— In Fort Worth? All, yeah, it was in Fort Worth. This the Old South Pancake House, strategically located, not quite on campus, but close enough. And they had, you know, at the table, there was like strawberry flavored syrup. And I, yeah, I'm putting scare quotes around the syrup because I think it was basically just like corn syrup. You might have anything. also put quotes around the strawberry. Right. But but so somebody started talking about Animal House and the scene where Belushi ah, douses yes. himself. Yes. And so one of the guys at the table, 
basically decided to do that, to live it out with the strawberry syrup, and then wandered off to go kind of deal with the aftermath of his shirt <laughs> in the bathroom. A little while later, somebody goes in there. They come running back out. They're like, he took his clothes off to wash them in the sink. <laughs> so we left. That's what one does in that situation, I think. That was that. That was it. That, that was, was that story. That was it. Well, you know, it's a family show. We got to be careful here. <laughs> All right, what are we going to talk about besides vacations in college? Uh, well, we have some uh, various developments in Trumplandia litigation world, including uh, the twentieth stay application in the Supreme Court in a Trumpy case, the the border wall dispute that we've talked about before. All right, and um, speaking of the Supreme Court, speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, the Supreme Court has scheduled uh, Hernandez for argument. Um, November 12th, which actually is Karen and my eighth wedding anniversary. That was, I'm sure, no accident. Congratulations, oh, yeah. Happy Karen. Anniversary. Happy anniversary. Wait, anniversary trip to D.C. Totally. Well, um, you guys enjoy going to D.C. That won't be too bad. We do. Um, Except I, for the work the, part. The, the more, part where you have to argue at the Supreme Court. <laughs> eh, who's listening? Um, I mean, indeed, we, we are actually, so what's interesting about that, Bobby, is we are going to be the second case um, after DACA. Hmm. And so it's going to be one of those scenarios where, like, the entire courtroom leaves. Yeah, nobody can get in until after That's that. Right. That's right. So, so it's actually, the second case is perfect because you need a little uh, uh, flow time to get your all your people and your many fans to get in there. Oh, yeah. Or or second case means that, like, they'll spend all their energy on the DACA case and then they'll be like, okay, whatever, dude. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we know how we're ruling in your case. Any simmering uh, fights might boil over in, in your face. Yeah. Uh, well, we will encourage the D.C. contingent of listeners to come out and hear Steve then and wish him a happy anniversary. Thank you. Although so- someone asked me when they should get in line for the argument since DACA's first, and I said October. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, Bobby, we also have some interesting developments with the the long incorate peaklob peaklob incorate no more it it is fully fully fun it's a fully operational <laughs> battle station <laughs> battle station <laughs> oh that was good peaklob so we could have so done more with there are like three episode titles there right there's there's incorate no more it <laughs> there's um the peaklob is a fully operational battle station <laughs> I like that a lot. They've got five members, and they've got... Although we're spoiling our bacon number jokes. uh, That will be a source of titles for sure. Um, They've got not just a full membership, but they've released a a really nice list of exactly what their current projects are. I say exactly. There's a little bit that's unclear, but most of it's been named. Uh, There's more than I thought. I counted roughly, it depends on how you break them up, there's roughly 10 projects underway. That's something P-Club, as I think longtime listeners know, we both think is a really important institution. P-Club, by the way, the, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Yes, we will We will unpack P-Club. Uh, like that? It's got we'll, a nice we'll unclob kinda, it. Un, yeah. We'll declob it. We'll declob it later. Um, we neglected our, our first thing we got to open up with. Oh, uh, right. I totally skipped over. See, I, I, it would help if I could read, right? Yeah, because we actually have it written on the board here. Uh, should we snapshot that and send that out? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Justice we're Stevens passed. Justice right. Stevens passed, and we're gonna we're gonna do a little mini reflection on yep. uh, some of his national security uh, focused case True. history, um, and, and, and perhaps professional history before he was a justice. What? Long, you know, his uh, just because he's the last uh, justice to serve in the military. Well, not was he the last one to serve in the military? I knew I knew he was perhaps the one and only cryptographer. Well, there's also that. Yeah. Um, all right. So not, then, with, uh, not just a cryptographer, but a Navy cryptographer during World War II, where that don't, was kind don't of. Spoil the oh. specially big one that he was uh, connected to. That he cryptographed. 
that he <laughs> we would have stopped that whole line of uh, in- inventiveness. What about Luxembourg? Ah, so relevant to the P-Club, so part of what made the, the not-quite-vacation trip for me so interesting was this random uh, detour I took to to one of the smaller countries in Europe, the, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, um, where it just so happens that the Court of Justice of the European Union sits, and it was hearing the appeal in the Max Schrems Facebook Privacy Shields uh, contractual clauses dispute. And we'll talk about what your role was supposed to be there, what it nah, was. My there. role was to sit there and smile. But what I really want to know is did you meet the Grand Duke? I, you know, I walked past the, the, the Grand Ducal Palace, um, but the Duke was not hanging out outside. Well, perhaps, and I just saw Aladdin recently. Maybe he was, but he was in garb and you didn't know. Yeah, there was no one out there. So, <laughs> I mean, unless he was camouflaged as a wall. Um, that would have been pretty hard. Cloak of invisibility in Luxembourg. Hmm. But, uh, I will, but I will say, I mean, I will say that that Henri um, is apparently beloved by Luxembourgians. Well, they have to say that. Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm sure he is. How uh, is Luxembourg even a country? Well, we'll somebody, friends, listeners. Are any of you residents of Luxembourg? I'm sure oh, some of you know the answer, but do a, we have a, a listener? A great, are there any Luxembourger listeners to this podcast? Luxembourgians? Luxembourger. I think it's Luxembourgers. Luxembourgers. It ought yeah. to be Luxembourgers. If it's not, I'm officially decreeing that it should be. All right. Back to this side of the pond. <laughs> it's like an old taxi episode. Uh, Bobby, you want to do a, a brief update on the National Defense Authorization Act, which is now through the House with a whole bunch of amendments, some of which um, have riled up the administration. You know, uh, the end. We'll say a lot about what the NDA is supposed to be, what it is each year. Um, it's I think heading for more of a more of a clash than is normal from from recent years. We'll see what happens there. We'll we'll touch on some of the highlights. Definitely not meant to be our comprehensive overview. We're sort of waiting on the conference process to get at least close to revision before we start doing a real deep dive, deep dive, deep into, dive. into what may be about to become law there. But we'll, what we're going to focus on are things that the administration's uh, Statement of Administration Policy, or SAP document, uh, hence might be red lines for the administration. Now, that's before all the last-minute amendments to the House bill, the, the, the more exotic ones perhaps being less likely to come through the conference process anyways. Okay, um, we should say something about UC Irvine, was it? UCI? Unlawful command influence. Oh, oh that's that what UCI. you meant. Oh, my bad, my bad. Yes, UCI in the uh, court-martial sense. Yes, so there was actually, I think, a really important and really interesting decision yesterday by the, the, the very closely watched Army Court of Criminal Appeals. Closely watched in some quarters, well, including indeed. yours. Indeed. Um, and uh, basically, the sort of long story short, um, the court found that um, the president had, in fact, committed unlawful command influence in Bo Bergdahl's case, but divided two to one as to whether that, uh, that uh, UCI was sufficient to require some kind of remedy, with the majority holding the answer was no. Super interesting. And then we'll close out with a roundup of activity by the National did Security it, did, Division. Did, 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 did. Roundup. Oh, we need like a sort of a radio theme. Uh, we got to get some sound effects. That would be great for a yeehaw or something like that. <laughs> National Security Division. Maybe that was it. National Security I Division know, roundup. I don't know that yeehaw is necessarily the sound effect I'm going for. For, for roundup? You know, for, oh, for, prosecu- great. for criminal prosecutions. Well, for... No, no, no. I'm not using the shame bell for National Security Division activity. No, I'm shame belling you. What? For, for, for associating yeehaw with the word roundup? I stand by my yeehaw. Uh, we have a quick number of developments in prominent National Security Division cases to report on. 
Then um, you've been busy. Well, you've just been generally busy, been busy. But one of the things that kept you busy recently was uh, your your work on the casebook. page supplement to our casebook. Yeah. <laughs> At what point does it just not count as a – like what is the categorical definition of supplement? I guess as long as you're putting it out there as a companion that doesn't replace the original, no matter how big it gets, it's a supplement still. Yeah, although, man, I mean – <laughs> an addendum i'm in the wrong field i well, just I, I really ought to be a roman law law expert so that things don't change as much or as rapidly like, I, mean, I, I mean imagine if i taught like you know roman legal history right i mean i feel like you wouldn't have you know earth-shattering developments every two weeks in that field I assume that's the case. We'll have to ping Emily Cadence. She mm. would know, and, and a number of others. Uh, I'm sure they would say, like, actually, I can almost hear it. Actually, you'd be surprised. You know what? No. I, no. <laughs> you know what? I'm just putting this. I'm laying this down there now. I love you, Roman legal historians. But, but the field I am, is static? Your field is relatively more static. It's not the discovery of Justinian's code every week there. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll close out there and switch to frivolity, our long-anticipated uh, analysis of a Star Trek The Next Generation episode. The Pegasus. The Pegasus. Um, we'll, we'll be silly with that one for sure. All right, let's dive and, in. And, and violations of the Treaty of Algeron. <laughs> the Treaty of Algeron. Not, not the Treaty of Algernon. Eh, we, know, we figured that one out. I'm eventually. definitely going back to reread Flowers for Algernon, by go. the way. I'm super inspired. Okay, let's Justice talk about Stevens. Justice Stevens. So the news broke Rest l- in peace, Justice last Stevens. night um, at the, at the uh, ripe old age of 99 I mean, we should yeah. all be so lucky. That's impressive. Um, Justice Stevens, who was appointed to the Supreme Court by President Gerald Ford, um, Ford, who in his later years said um, the most important and redeeming thing he did while president was put Justice Stevens I on the Supreme Court. I heard that on Court. NPR this morning. I thought that was so interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. He was um, very proud of that. So uh, uh, named to the court in 1975. Um, as a Republican. I mean, he was oh, a— yeah. No, he would be the first to tell you. He was—I I think we would characterize him— to, oh, that'll be an interesting question. How do you characterize him today? But he was, uh, at that time, reflective of the fact that I think both parties encompassed a fair, mar- fair amount of ideological diversity. He was a moderate Republican, of which there were many in the early That's to right. mid-70s. That's right. um, and I, I mean, I do think his views moderated even a bit while he was on the court. I mean, I think he did move a bit to the left. But um, I think he's exactly right when he said over and over again that the court moved dramatically to the right after his appointment to the point where basically almost every justice who was appointed while he was on the court um, was more conservative than their predecessor, um, right? And so whether that meant just You're not- saying that even as to the to the the liberal appointees? Yeah, yeah, so, right. That, who, that, did, who did Ginsburg replace? Uh, Ginsburg replaced, was it White? No, who did Ginsburg replace? That, yeah, certain- Blackman? Um, I took it back and look. Anyway, okay. So with 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 some I possible said, I said, exceptions, I said I said, yeah, I said almost yeah. every. Okay, I, okay, I missed that. that. I thought you were saying across the board. No. I missed that. Nuance okay. is is important. Uh, see, he was confirmed what unanimously by the Senate in 19 days. Those those were the those days. were the days. Um, and you know, one of the things that I mean, leaving aside my favorite sort of couple of personal stories about him, including that he was at Game Three of the 1932 World Series, known to baseball historians as the called shot game. And by the way, his version is, yes, Ruth definitely did call his shot. Oh, he did? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, but he was 12. Yeah. He wasn't just there. He was old enough to actually distinctly no, he'd, remember he'd, he'd the experience. It. That's pretty awesome. Uh, and he lived long enough to actually watch the Cubs win a World Series. <laughs> Ouch. So, <laughs> I mean, it's true. Ouch. Um, there's so much to say about Justice Stevens the man. I just want to talk briefly about his his impact in national security law specifically. Um 
Which is to say, I mean, I think Justice Stevens, as both the senior and to a large degree sort of leader of the court's more progressive bloc, um, played an outsized role, Bobby, in the major terrorism cases the court decided in the you know the the middle of the last decade. So, for example, I mean, he wrote the principal dissent um, in the Padilla case. He wrote the majority opinion in the Razul case, um, right, holding that the habeas statute extended to Guantanamo. Um, I think he was you know, very much integrally, I think there was a lot of sort of back and forth between him and Justice Kennedy, um, leading to the Hamdan case, where he not only wrote the majority slash plurality opinion, but he actually presided because Chief Justice Roberts was recused. Yeah, so uh, I will, so I guess what I would say is, I, I don't think that he made a super huge mark where like he really defined the era, but he definitely was obviously hugely important on some of these key cases. Hamdan to me stands out as a particularly important one, both for its qualities as, you know, one of those rare examples of the brushback uh, on the executive branch for acting unilaterally in an area where, where they're told by the court, no, Congress is going to, Congress is going to have to be uh, involved in that decision. In that case, the military commission's decision, but perhaps at least to me, where I'm someone who's more concerned with the other part of that holding um, than the military commission part, the common Article Three yep. aspect of the holding. Right. Um, it, it's not the clearest discussion of exactly what the court was saying by design, I think. But the one thing that was clear was it was expressly rejecting the proposition the administration had adopted, which is that there's a gap in the in the universe of possible armed conflicts. The Bush administration had taken the view that an armed conflict could be international in nature, in which case the full sweep of the, the 1949 Geneva Conventions would apply. Uh, it could be non-international in nature, in which case common Article Three of the 1949 Conventions could apply. But, and this was the sort of the dramatic innovation of uh, the Bush administration in the first term, the idea that there was also an in-between category where it was not international because the conflict didn't have a sovereign on both sides, but wasn't non-international because it spilled across borders and had sort of a transnational nature. This idea of a, an uncovered conflict, covered by the customary laws of war, but uncovered by the 1949 conventions. Um, that was critical for many reasons. Among the chief reasons is that the then existing War Crimes Act, the federal statute uh, in creating federal criminal liability for various war crimes, uh, in, at that time incorporated lock, stock, and barrel common Article Three and grave breaches of the broader conventions. So the idea that there was an in-between category covered by neither meant the War Crimes Act had no application, which was uh, something that didn't survive the Hamdan decision, where Stephen said, at a minimum, common Article Three applies to whatever is counting as this conflict. That was huge. I agree. Um, I, you know, I, I would just say two other quick things because I don't want to sort of get lost in this. But um, I think it is hard for us to fully appreciate. But I've always suspected that he played an outsized role in some of the sort of behind the scenes stuff that was going on. So, for example, in when Padilla came back in two thousand six, the joint opinion um, concurring in the denial of cert. It's a signed opinion by um, Kennedy, Stevens, and the chief. 
Yeah. Right. And, that was and, super interesting. And I think it was telling that it was Stevens. Like I think that was that was quite a powerful sign that Stevens himself was saying, you know, um, I'm joining this not necessarily because I agree with it, but to show that like there's a a this is broad. This is yeah. there's a consensus for the position that Justice Kennedy is taking out in this opinion. That was rather a triumvirate, yep. not just numerically, right? But in the in um, the Roman sense. And I think we saw the same thing in Boumedian, where you know this is the big 2008 case where the court says the suspension clause applies to Guantanamo. The court had initially denied cert in Boumedian, um, and it was only on rehearing that it granted cert. And when it denied cert, there was a Kennedy-Stevens concurring opinion respecting the denial. Yeah. Um, where I think, you know, I take those sort of short, brief, non-substantive opinions as sort of signs that Stevens was very carefully trying to work the room, yeah. right, and trying to sort of, you know, take the temperature of the justices to his right uh, to figure out when the court should and should not intervene in these national security cases. Do you happen to know whether his papers are going to become available now that he's passed? Nope. Not until the last justice he served with um, is is no longer on the court. Who's got them? Uh, I don't know. I don't know in whose possession they are, but I know, mm. I mean, there was already something this morning that his papers won't be available until the last justice he served with. So, right. um, I mean, we, you know, he served with... Um, Sotomayor um, for a year. Yeah. Um, he served with the chief, right, for five years. Yeah. So it's yeah. going to be a while. It's going to be a while. All right. Set that aside. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, speaking of the court, yeah. there, we've got a little border wall litigation action. What has happened? So you, you have been on the ball um, in talking about the border wall development and the Sierra Club case and the first preliminary and then permanent injunction entered against some of the border wall funding and spending by Judge Gilliam in Oakland. Um, since last we convened, um, two things of import happened. First, on July 3rd, um, the Ninth Circuit uh, denied the government's application for a stay um, in a divided opinion. I think Judge Bybee wrote the majority opinion. Um, and I think Judge... <laughs> Speaking uh, of interrogation. Uh, well, indeed. Um, and Judge Randy Smith, I think, dissented. Um, and what's interesting about that is, you know, Judge Bybee... Whatever folks might think about caricaturing the Ninth Circuit, no one would think that Judge Bybee is one of the more extreme liberals no, on the Ninth Circuit. No, 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 no. no. Um, and this is actually the now, second— for, for, uh, Some listeners are like, why are y'all laughing and making jokes? Jay Bybee was head of the Office of Legal Counsel yes. during the first term of the Bush administration and is was famously—his uh, uh, name, at least— was on the signature for the two uh, August first, two thousand and two OLC memos that are so controversially known as the torture memos, right. insofar as they, you know, adopted debatable, controversial constructions of the relevant statutes and constitutional provisions regarding torture. There you go. Um, anyway, uh, my super awkward Jay Bybee story, by the way. So I was clerking on the Ninth Circuit 0405 right when the torture memos leaked in the Washington Post. And I literally had them sitting on my desk in my chambers. And my judge walks in with this very well-dressed, dapper gentleman. And my judge says, Steve, I'd like you to meet Jay Bybee. <laughs> Do you like spill your coffee? And I was like, oh. Uh, so Are left, you asking for his autograph? Left hey, hand. sign le this. Left hand flips over. Torture memo, right hand. Nice to meet you, Your Honor. That's really funny. Um, anyway, I say all this because um, it, a non-ideological right um, uh, split on the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the Ninth Circuit denied a stay, um, and then last Friday, um, the government uh, filed an application with Justice Kagan, who's the Circuit Justice for the Ninth Circuit, um, for a stay from the Supreme Court, um, which is you know not necessarily remarkable. In ordinary times, it would be remarkable. This is actually the twentieth time 
that the Solicitor General in the two and a half years of the Trump administration has asked the Supreme Court for such emergency relief for a stay. Put that in context. Um, over the prior 16 years, so the entire George W. Bush administration, the entire Obama administration, um, the SG filed eight such applications. So one every two years. Yeah. <laughs> so, Versus something's a foot. And then, yeah. Somebody ought to write something up about that. So somebody ought to write something about that. So this is all, the reason why I know this number off the top of my head is because I've been working for some time on a paper for um, the November issue of the Harvard Law Review, which is the Supreme Court issue, as, as you well know, mm-hmm. um, basically on this uptick and on sort of documenting this uptick in applications for unusual relief, emergency or extraordinary relief, um, trying to figure out where it's coming from, um, looking at how the court has reacted and trying to sort of extrapolate some longer term takeaways and lessons. And good timing for me, um, I posted it on Monday to SSRN. So it's now it's now out in the world. All right. So listeners, if you're curious to read up about, about that in detail, you can find it really easily. Just do a Google search of Steve's name and what, SSRN and- The title of the paper is The Solicitor General and the Shadow Docket. Yep. You'll find it. I mean, a, I don't that's think a free need, download. I don't even think you need my name or SSRN. I think if you just search for The Solicitor General and the Shadow Docket, you will find- I, I think I've got unique rights so far on that that's one. That's awesome. Although I should say, I mean, the term The Shadow Docket is not mine. The term is actually, um, it was coined by Will Bode, our friend Mm -hmm. at the University of Chicago, um, to describe that part of the Supreme Court's caseload that is not sort of published opinions and argued cases. Basically, all the stuff the court is doing when it's granting or denying certiorari, when it's granting or denying stay applications, et cetera. Many exercises of important power and consequential things happen there. So that's very cool. Um, Well, and the the border wall, right? I mean, this is just sort of yet another example, right, of of the pressure that all these cases are putting on the court to basically depart from its normal order. Yeah. To what extent would you say, kind of bottom line, the court is actually acceding to that pressure, though? So, I mean, the paper says, you know, I think the numerical record is a bit mixed, Bobby, but the sort of spirit, if you if you sort of take a more functional and holistic approach, the court is generally, I think, acceding to the government's request. I mean, there are some important counterexamples and, you know, the asylum ban in December when the chief justice sided with the lefties to deny a stay is one very important example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But for the most part, the SG is getting a lot of what he's asking for in these cases. Um, and the paper talks about why both I think that's true and why I'm not sure in the long term that's a healthy thing, right? That, that you know, for first, I think that means the court is an important part of the story. We can't just say, oh, Solicitor General Francisco is being unusually aggressive, you know, shame on him. Right. Well, if it's working. That's right. You know, no, no, yeah. that's, I, I, the paper, I think, is quite clear on this, that I think too much, you know, for those who are critical of this, too much of the criticism has been directed toward the SG, not enough to the court. Um, but I also think that sort part of it takes two to tango. Sort absolutely, of. and I think and I think the question that I think the justices ought to be asking, um, and this is not limited to this context. I mean, Will has raised a similar question for other shadow docket issues. Is even if there is a majority that is pursuant to some quiet doctrinal shift, willing to sort of change the court's course and change the direction and allow for more of these extraordinary applications to go forward, I do think it would be better for the court to say that than to leave it to sort of, you know, inferring things from the one-sentence orders you get on the order list. Because otherwise, we're left to sort of speculate as to whether the law actually is changing, Mm. whether the court actually is applying a different standard to government applications versus, say, private party applications. And, you know, we can have different views about whether it would be a good thing if they were. 
I think we'd all benefit from knowing just what the answer was. Congress presumably could, in some theoretical world, legislate that standard, modulate it. Modulate it. Although I'm, I'm wary. I mean, there's a long tradition. I mean, you could, they obviously could work around whatever Congress writes. Certainly true. But also there's a long tradition that I think is generally a defensible one, that Congress leaves equitable standards to the courts, right? That, that sort of deciding when the balance of equities justifies some kind of extraordinary intervention is not something that's easy to do through yeah, statute. That's, that's standards, not rules. Uh, indeed. Yeah. So all this to say, um, the border wall itself we've talked about, and so I think this is a, another sort of ex- opportunity for the court to, to to weigh in on this. I think it is yet another reflection, right, of the dynamics that the paper tries to capture. So if folks are looking for some, you know, bedtime reading. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> make sure you are lying down. Yes. Um, big words. <laughs> Actually, there aren't really that many big words. <laughs> Um, somnambulance, there's a big word. Somnambulance, nice. Uh, no, somnambulance, so, yeah, somnambulance no, right. right? Putting you to sleep. Yep. That's like the paper. All right. Um, anyway, that's that. So that's the border wall. That's Trumplandia. Good stuff. Uh, well, we actually have a little more Trump litigation stuff to talk about later. But first, you want to talk about P-Club. P-Club. Okay, we, we previewed this a little bit. Privacy and civil liberties we this oversight. In detail. Our, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we had a long run of show today. We like to let the cat out of the bag a little early. Poor yeah, cat. Yeah. Uh, P-Club is an independent agency tasked with reviewing with an eye towards privacy and civil liberties impact. Um, for, for one of a better phrase, and I'm sure there's an actual description of this on the side. I just didn't look it up. Um, the things that the intelligence community does for counterterrorism-related purposes, I believe. Stephen, that right? That yep. it's specific to CT? Right. So it's not just a free-floating, all things privacy and civil liberties, um, but rather the types of collection and perhaps analysis activities that are engaged in, at least in part because they relate to CT. So uh, PCLAW became a big deal after lying about basically dormant for a while after the Snowden explosion in summer 2013 led to so much pressure on the Obama administration to be seen to be doing things and and in some senses a desire to be doing things to police the the balance of equities between collection equities and civil liberties and privacy impacts. PCLOB was a handy tool, one among several that the Obama administration picked up and tried to use more effectively. Uh, And it made a big impact, I would argue, on how Congress later on dealt with two things, Section 702, which we've talked about a lot on this show, and Section 215, call uh, detail records, CDRs, or telephone metadata, perhaps a more familiar way of referring to that. Those two programs came in for a lot of scrutiny, both in terms of the substance of what they're supposed to be doing and the legal and policy and, and other aspects of how it's done. And the long and short of it is that as to 702, PCLOB was somewhat of a champion offering lots of recommendations for reform, to be sure, many of which were adopted, but also underscoring in a, in a very credible way, in, in the way that only at least a partially disinterested third party might, uh, a endorsement of the government's claim that this is genuinely an important intelligence collection program, whereas for Section 215, before the USA Freedom Act, it kind of came in the opposite way. Yes, lots of recommendations for reform, but also uh, endorsing the criticism effectively that this isn't actually that important in its in its own terms. And uh, the legal consequences have tracked its recommendations. Now, it went dormant for a while for being in core eight. It's now got a full five members. And the other day it released a uh, publication that it says it's going to update every other year. 
um, saying, here's as much detail as we can share about what we're currently doing. And it was very interesting because there was about 10 different things on there. And I, I wouldn't have put the number that high as, as a matter of guesswork. Some of it was familiar. Um, it is continuing, of course, to look at the telephone call detail records uh, stuff that's now under USA Freedom Act, was under Section 215 as such. It's still looking at Section 702 because it has a set of recommendations and it's monitoring how those are coming over time. It's still looking at uh, President Obama's PPD-28, that's Presidential Policy Directive 28. That was the the sort of formal Obama administration course adjustment after the Snowden revelations. There's a lot of details in there. We've talked about them before. Indeed. Um, what else? Some of this was known publicly. Some of it wasn't. I'm just going to review it all real quick. Uh, we knew that PCLOB had taken on some form of Executive Order 12333 study. Now, for those who aren't familiar with EO 12333, this is a shorthand that's used in various different ways. And so it causes confusion in some audiences depending on... Because it does different things. It does. It, it's, a, it's a big sweeping executive order. The, the original version of it was also a Ford administration product. It was updated and carried forward by the Carter administration and then repromulgated by President Reagan as Executive Order 12333. And it's been carried on by all presidents since. It's generally referred to as 12333. One of the things it does is it provides a roadmap for which it, which institutions of the intelligence community are supposed to engage as the lead agency in various types of activities, requires minimization when U.S. person information is collected by them. But for, for our purposes, there's sort of a term of art way of using 12333 as a word or a concept that relates to collection. It's often used as a shorthand for the scenario where the collection activity is not governed by some more specific statute, the way that, say, FISA Title I. We talk about FISA Title I collection, the traditional FISA order collection for uh, electronic communication surveillance. Um, we don't call that 12333 collection, even though it is affected by 12333 because you got FISA. Section 702 is the way we refer to Section 702 collection. When it's just the general foreign intelligence collection activities of our IC, usually taking, presumably taking place outside the United States, directed at foreign targets, um, a good sweeping generalization for it is to call that 12333 collection. So we knew PCLOB was looking into the counterterrorism-related aspects of 12333 collection. I'm not sure we knew exactly before what it was doing. This document says there have been three major focal points to that inquiry, one of which is no longer active. And I don't think, listeners correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we know what that one was. And, and in particular, I don't think we know whether it's done because it was completed and it's run its course, or I think more likely it was controversial whether it was quite what P-Club should be doing. I think there was some talk early on about there being tensions of that kind. Well, there, and there was, at one point, someone introduced legislation to actually to expressly stop them, right? deny P-Club from looking at 12333. Right. So it's possible that one of their original three has been axed and replaced. And the, one of the decisions of the new uh, group is to say, all right, we're not going to do that. Anyways, they don't name that one, whatever it was, let alone explain what happened to it. You've got two others, though. And they say... Very little about one of them. They say there's a, quote, deep dive, close quote, deep dive review of an unspecified CIA activity of some kind. So who knows what that could be? Um, and then with a little more specificity, very uh, tantalizing specificity, as to NSA, their other deep dive review under 12333 concerns X-Key score. Um, that 
if that phrase means nothing to you, then hold on, we'll explain a bit here in a second. Um, but I, I bet for a lot of listeners, they've heard that and maybe they know a lot about it because it's something that got splashed all over the headlines uh, a couple of times thanks to Snowden document releases. Lots of classified information about this erstwhile classified uh, title and activity or program uh, getting published, released to the public, and then launching both a lot of media articles and then even more sort of conspiracy theorizing about what this might represent. Um, I think it's fair to say that sort of there, there's a depiction out there that, that I myself, I, I have no knowledge of this, by the way, no classified information at all in my head. Um, but I think it's fair to say that some people have this cartoonish or caricatured view of it where X key score is somehow this magic it's a, it's a code name for some sort of magic ability to surveil anyone, anywhere, all the time. This has been sort of fueled by the ways that Snowden has talked about it. Um, what it actually appears to be based on stuff that's been talked about publicly uh, and is in the newspapers is it, this is a software tool for analysts to access and query uh, various collections or federated databases of stuff that's been collected otherwise, including presumably 12333 collection, which is why this is coming under the heading of 12333 analysis by PCLOB. Um, there, are, there are certainly interesting things one might want to do if you're PCLOB in relation to a software tool that analysts use to run queries against various collection databases. Um, one is you might want to make sure that those the software itself and the management process surrounding it adheres to whatever statutory rules, say, uh, Section 702 might entail, any Executive Order 12333 minimization requirements that are required. Indeed, you might want to just simply survey the whole uh, internal controls process associated with it, especially if there's been all this rumor-mongering suggesting that somehow it's a, it's a free fire zone where analysts somehow can backdoor search all sorts of perhaps U.S. person information. Hey, Maybe it'll turn out that's what's indeed happening, in which case it's a good thing PCLOB is coming along to look at it. I myself am very skeptical that's what it's going to turn out to be. Uh, I think it's probably the sort of thing that that because of the way it was presented in leaked documents, there weren't meant to be a explanation of how the program really works for the outside, probably led to some misunderstandings and things have been misunderstood in that sense. But I think it's cool that PCLOB can engage on this issue where there's a lot of public concern and they can, to, with whatever credibility they can muster, they can either put it to rest or validate it. That that seems like a useful oversight framework. I think that's right. I mean, I, I you know, my my sort of default proposition is the more P Club does, the better, um, mm -hmm. right? That that you know, it's it's the government has actually relied upon the P Club seven hundred two report left and right. I mean, mm -hmm. as sort of you know, proof that things aren't as bad as as many of the challengers say they are. Um, so, you know, I, I, I mean, I, more, more accountability is a good thing. Yeah, I think, and, and here's one where, you know, they get access to all the classified information. I would say they arguably turn out to be in a slightly better position, maybe even than Congress, right? Mm -hmm. In part because it's, it's a less, by definition, it's a less politicized institution in the sense that these aren't people who have to account for elections, right? Um, in any event, there's other stuff Peak Lab is doing. Let's note real quick, they're doing a study of face recognition in the context of air travel. And I've been hearing, although I haven't seen it myself, that some of the airlines have moved to this as an boarding pass sort of replacement, which is really something. Um, they're looking into FBI's use of both open source intelligence 
And the variation of that where you go and buy information from a commercial provider, um, that to me, I think, is one of the most underappreciated and understudied slices of how the government gathers information, whether it's for law enforcement or uh, national security purposes. They're looking at uh, the querying by FBI of 702 data, which is something that's been surrounding and complicating the 702 renewal debate quite a bit. They're looking at the Treasury Department's terrorist finance tracking program. They're looking at the FBI's terrorist screening database, database, which is a watch list. Uh, They're looking at how passenger name records are being used. Um, They they have a few other things they're doing, including consulting on updates to attorney general guidelines. But wow, what an exciting time to be at PCLOB. Very useful institution. Strange story, I would argue, of the government working pretty well in 2019. We'll see. Yeah, take a wait and see attitude on the well, results. I and, appreciate that. And, and briefly, I mean, part, and part of why this may matter, I mean, so just to, to tie a couple of threads together. So part of the reason why I took a, a quick little side trip to Luxembourg last week, wow, it was really last week, um, is because there is still this ongoing litigation in Europe, right, over the adequacy of legal protections for EU citizens under U.S. surveillance law. Um, and so this is this is the Schrems II case, which is now back before the CJEU, the Court of Justice for the European Union, where the whole sort of fight is over whether companies like Facebook that transfer data between European servers and American servers are actually violating EU law because there's insufficient protection on the U.S. side for the privacy rights of EU citizens. Um, so, you know, how part of what is sort of looming in the background of the, the CJEU case of Schrems II um, is broader questions about privacy shield, um, about these so-called standard contractual clauses, and all of which is based on some kind of adequacy assessment of U.S. surveillance law, Bobby, which is only aided, right, by sort of further clarification and daylight about what the U.S. actually is doing. Yeah, I'll, I'll channel channel my inner Stuart Baker here and, <laughs> and, and express my, my wariness uh, about what the actual underlying uh, uh, shall we say, a mercantilist interest of, of some of what's going on here with Europe's approach. I, I note here the, the uh, new uh, tax that's been carefully gerrymandered, so it will only apply to a handful of large American tech companies. There, there's a great deal of, of phobia in Europe about large American tech companies. Some of it definitely genuinely inspired by, by unhappiness about how data flows in these, these uh, arrangements. Uh, some of it also simply unhappiness that these these are not European companies that are reaping the massive benefits yeah, from this. Okay, wait, wait. I'm, I, I'm not saying I'm I'm not saying that everyone's feeling that way. That's why I began by saying some have a ideological or, or policy based objection. But there's there's no question that there is abroad in Europe a lot of hostility to the American tech companies, and we're seeing lots of indicators of it in different settings, and you don't see anything like this directed at Chinese tech companies? Like, where's the investigation of TikTok or any number of other large companies? You'll hear no disagreement from me there. But I do think that some of the pessimism and wariness is not just about U.S. tech companies, but also about the U.S. government, right? That, That there is similarly present, if maybe to Stewart's mind, similarly misplaced um, fear of the U.S. government and U.S. surveillance operations when it comes to Europeans' data. I will certainly agree that the, the Trump phenomenon makes everything worse. That, that's just sort of generally <laughs> true, uh, including this. That, that, that including is an evergreen this. statement out You're of right. context. But I will, I will definitely die, fight and die on the hill of all this stuff was already in play before Trump was in the White House. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree. So one of the things that struck me about this litigation from the beginning is it's very not Trumpy. Right, um, no, this, this is this is 
national rather than right. Oh, I will say, I, mean, I will say that one of the things that has made the the that has made Facebook and the U.S. government's position much stronger in the Schrems litigation is PPD twenty eight, right? The Presidential Policy Directive that creates as a matter purely as a matter of executive branch prerogative additional minimization rules for your for foreign nationals yeah. um, that. We had thought for a time the Trump administration right. would receive. Contrary to our predictions, they've absolutely left that in place. And it's clearly because that does – somebody has managed either to keep it off the radar screen right. or – this is not inconsistent with that, I guess – or at least made the case in the right places. That that this is that, 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 that keeping this on the books is actually really important to, to yeah. help the litigation. The American business benefits, American commerce and entrepreneurship. So, so in a very non-American development, so the CJU at the end of the year – at the end of the – Bobby, like nine hour hearing. And you were there because? Oh, I was there because in the trial, the original trial in Ireland in Trems 2, I was an expert witness on behalf of Facebook. Don't everybody throw things at me. Um, <laughs> boo, boo. Um, testifying about the sort of full scope of remedies under U.S. law. Basically, I was basically the Fed courts nerd in the Irish court. That's awesome. Um, and so, so you were going to reprise that role? Just, in, I mean, I was there basically to help the lawyers in case any questions came up. There was like a one in a 10 billion chance that the judges might actually ask to speak to the experts. Yeah. Um, so our friend Ashley Gorski from the ACLU was also there um, on Shrems' or on the on Shrems' side. Anyway, um, but at the end of this crazy long hearing where everyone and their mother was heard from, um, like there were 19 different presentations by counsel because because if the member countries are allowed to participate, right, oh. member organizations, it was a long hearing. Anyway. So it sounds like a city council meeting, open mic night. I, I will just say, so in, in, in praise of this hearing, at least we were allowed to have our phones. So because if I had to sit, like, I don't know, if I had to sit in a room for nine and a half hours with literally nothing to do besides oh listen, God. I don't know what I would have done. Anyway, but at the end of the hearing, the advocate general um, announced that his decision will be rendered on December 12th. Without your input. This is outrageous. No, it's fine. <laughs> I, my, my input, the less they need my input, the better so far as I'm concerned. Well, that, okay, so when's it coming out? December 12th. That's pretty specific. I, I was going to say, like, so I sat back and thought to myself, on the uh, one hand, very cool that you're telling people now and the decision's coming down. On the other hand, how do you know today that exactly five months and three days from now, you'll be ready? I feel like the only reasonable interpretation of that is they're like, well, we're going to get this when we get to it. We're going to set the December 12th as a safe deadline. No sooner than that. We'll do it sometime before then. Which is ridiculous. Hey, whatever works. So, All right. So that, so that was my, my, my 32 hours in Luxembourg. And I just have to say on a, on a tourist note. Yeah. Um, so, you know, dear friends, um, I, I love, you know, new countries. I love being able to say I've been to new places. Yeah? How'd this go? I, 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 I all I'll say is if you are trying to figure out how to spend your time in, you know, Western Europe, um, I wouldn't skip Luxembourg if you're going to be there anyway. But I don't know that I would necessarily go out of my way to add it to Ouch. my itinerary. Ouch! The uh, the Convention and Visitors Bureau of Luxembourg is going to be so mad when yeah, they hear this. Yeah, they're going to be pissed. <laughs> that was a soft disc, but that was basically a disc. It's a lovely place. People were very friendly. It's super It's super nice. I just, I didn't find, like, you know. Just a city. There's so much history in so many of the other, like, European cities in that part of, of Europe. I mean, like, Brussels, right, has such history, like, you know. Um, I, Luxembourg, the city, just see. I mean, what, what, you know, the. Let me put it this way: Lonely Planet, which is my go-to for guidebooks, okay. right? Lonely Planet one does not have an entire book on Luxembourg. It folds Luxembourg into the Belgium book. Sure. 
Two hey, Benelux. Okay. Two. Not only is it fold Be- Luxembourg into the Belgian book, it gets like six pages, like at the very, very end of the book. Oh dear, Luxembourg, Luxembourgian listeners, uh, Luxembourgers of the world unite and Wait, tell, tell Steve what he's missing. I, I'm not. I did. I, I spent a whole afternoon walking around the old city, and it was very pretty. And I took some pictures. But three. One of the big things that the guidebooks say to do when you're in Luxembourg is to go to the American military cemetery. because oh. that's where George Patton is buried. Did did you get out that time? Um, that's that's very cool. Yeah, well, but, okay. yeah, but wait, you but, persuaded but, but, me wait, 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 that hey, next hey, time hey, I'm over wait. there. If you're a foreign country and and like one of your top top tourist attractions, is that maybe just a tailored thing for the American audience? Lonely though? Planet's not an American public. No, I know, but British still like is the. They may not tailor it that way, but is it like, hey, a lot of a lot of American readers here. This is something they'll want to go do. I mean, I, you know, I, I have not done research on on how sort of um, neutral. You haven't right? done the Lonely Planet I, audience I analysis. I've done the Lonely Planet audience analysis. Fair enough. To figure out whether that's true. All to say is, I had a lovely time. Everyone was super friendly. It's a very pretty city, um, and I think if I had choices of time of how I spend my time in Western Europe, I might choose differently. Fair enough. All right. Well, um, we've got a National Defense Authorization Act on the way. Did it? Did it? Maybe. Uh, The House on party lines. He can't veto the NDAA. Oh, you know, if you said that to him, I think he'd do it just because you said that. Uh, the Senate had passed its version. The House passed a pretty different version uh, a couple days ago on party line votes. They're going to head to conference now. You know, who knows? We're not going to get into all the details. I want to flag a few things. The, the White House has issued a Statement of Administration Policy, or SAP. This is the vehicle through which um, the Office of Management and Budget reflects the official White House position in a sort of a costly public way. That is to say, kind of a more credible way than just meeting behind closed doors and saying, President might veto this, strongly objects to that. This kind of puts you out there in the public sphere. So you're you're a little more credible when you make these kinds of claims. Notably, this SAP doesn't promise a veto as to any one measure that was in the bill at the time pre-amendments um, before it got passed the other day. There are some things that came through as amendments that might well trigger a direct veto threat. It had a lot of, quote, strongly object statements. That's like one level down from promising the veto itself. I'm like maybe it'll be a veto, maybe it's not. One of the big, some of the stuff, a lot of it's about um, the ongoing dilemma of figuring out how to both maintain the the current nuclear posture of the United States and perhaps alter it in certain ways involving uh, a more aggressive use of a more aggressive development of the capability to use low-yield nuclear weapons. This is all bound up in changes involving us and the Russians uh, in terms of arms control. There's stuff about funding that's pretty high profile. The two bills are off by $17 billion from each other, which is real money, not not a huge percentage. It's $733 billion in the House bill, $750 billion in the uh, Senate bill. And then there's dispute over what does that $17 billion account for and how important is it? Um, I want to flag one thing that I thought was pretty interesting. There, there's stuff in there about trying to address the border wall funding and con- reallocation of construction funds, stuff that seems, because it relates directly to the current border wall fight, pretty likely were it to get through the conference process to draw the potential veto, right? I could see Trump really zeroing in on that. Um, may, maybe it gets through the conference process. Maybe it doesn't. There's some Gitmo stuff, though. Um, section, and, and it's interesting because the Trump administration highlights this in an almost Obama-esque way in objecting to some of the language in there about transfer restrictions. So, Steve, I'm going to note 
Section 1032 and 1033 of the House bill on Gitmo transfers. 1032, uh, prohibition on use of funds for transferring or releasing individuals detained at Gitmo to other countries. And it basically says you can't use any DOD funds under this act or any other act for a certain period to remove people or move them from Gitmo to uh, anyone in the following list of countries. And it's got Libya, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, Russia, North Korea. And then, so there, there's a transfer ban. And, and as to that, there is a uh, sort of a classic executive branch statement of, you know, under the right circumstances, statutory restrictions on the authority of the president to transfer a military detainee might be unconstitutional. It's, C- it's CF Bergdahl. Positively Obama-esque. Oh. It's, no, I mean, it's... It, cheap shot. I don't mean that's cheap shot at all. I mean that as, as look at that, the Trump administration claiming something that the Obama administration claimed and that the Bush administration would have claimed if there'd been transfer restrictions back there. You wouldn't think you'd see the White House objecting to transfer restrictions from a transfer policy perspective, but it shows right. you this the- purely prerogative. This shows you the persistence of the interest in, in defending Article II prerogatives. Yeah. Section 1033 is more interesting. Um, I'm going re- to quote from it. Prohibition on use of funds. No amounts authorized to be appropriated, da, 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 under the statute may be used to, quote, detain or provide assistance relating to the detention of any individual, including, not limited to, but including any United States citizen, pursuant to the law of war or proceeding under Chapter 47A of Title 10, that's the military commissions, or to transfer or provide assistance relating to the transfer of individuals, including citizens, for the purpose of detaining such individuals pursuant to the law of war or for military commission proceedings at Gitmo. There's an exception that follows that. Prohibition on, in subsection A shall not apply to any individual who is or was detained pursuant to the law of war or military commission act proceeding on or after May 2nd, 2018. So long and short of it here is this would close the door for further entry of people to Gitmo. Isn't that right? Um, you think the administration will treat that as a, a deal killer and would, would veto were that to make it through the conference report? I mean, I think as much as any of the other provisions, maybe. Um, yeah. And I think if I were you know, the administration targeting one provision in conference, that would be the one I'd be. It'd probably be a political winner for it to, to make a stink about that, right? If, it, if it's in there and they want to hang their hat on something, they'll feel like from the White House perspective, no one who's voting for them is going to object if they make a stink that's saying right. you can't close the door that's to right. Gitmo. Of course, the thing that's silly about it is it seems purely symbolic. Here we are many years now under the Trump administration. Right. They're not bringing anybody to Gitmo I mean, for a host been, of reasons. I mean, it's been right the, the end of this week. Saturday is two and a half years since President, President Trump's inauguration. Right? Yeah. No, no new detainees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So enough about the NDAA. Suffice to say that in the coming weeks, we're going to hear bits and pieces about the conference report. If and when something seems like it's really happening, we will let you know. And when eventually a bill is presented, we will definitely do a deep dive. There's going to be tons of stuff about about Cyber Command and a host of other things that we track on this show. All right. What else have we got? Anything before the fun begins? Um, I want to talk briefly about Bergdahl. Oh, speaking yeah. Of, speaking of... Unlawful command influence. Yeah. Lay it on me. So we've talked actually before, although I, 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 I'm embarrassed to say I did not go back and look at which episode, um, about the broader question over whether the president, as opposed to uh, military commanders can commit unlawful command influence, whether he actually has or did in the case of Sergeant Bo Bergdahl. Bergdahl, who, of course, was transferred famously um, in exchange for five Guantanamo detainees, arguably in violation of the then extant statutory transfer restrictions. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's, all, it all, it's all full. That circle. was a ro- one of 
several surprisingly robust Article Two moments for President Obama. Indeed, although I I, I would say, as I have said, um, that if ever there was a if there was a single fact pattern where I think the president would be on the strongest footing in advance of such a, a POW claim, transfer, it would be a POW transfer. Yeah. Um, where it's bringing one of our own soldiers home. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, be that as it may. Um, so in Bergdahl's case, I mean, I, I wrote a long blog post for Just Security in April 2017 that walked through all of the different many, many ways in which President Trump had publicly commented, often incorrectly, I know, hard to believe, um, about the Bergdahl case uh, and how that actually is t- textbook example of unlawful command influence. So Bergdahl had tried to litigate this issue before his court-martial. Um, he had basically been denied on procedural grounds. Um, we're now on the far side of his court-martial, and he once again raised this question on appeal to the Army Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, yesterday, the Army Court of Criminal Appeals handed down his decision, and what it found in a nutshell was that at least the tweet the president sent on the day of Bergdahl's sentencing, referring to the sentence as a, quote, disgrace, unquote, um, was unlawful command influence, right? Um, you, you had the you had the earlier campaign statements, yep. and, and, every, and the court agreed that the private statements citizen. of a private citizen, no matter that the person's uh, you know about to become yep. the president, perhaps um, Not can't count. You've yep. got to actually be in the right chain of command. And then, with regard to the stuff the president said once he became president, the court held that most of those statements were sufficiently attenuated, or yeah. at least in time removed from the trial. He ha- he had said something that was relatively brief, basically saying, "I've talked about this before. I stand by my comments." Basically, and the court said, well, you know, technically, strictly speaking, that's as right. if it brings all those comments back. But in practice, not really. And this is a functional what's the actual impact kind of inquiry. Right. So that wasn't enough to, to count. But, but he was sen- really the clear on the sen- sentence. The day of yeah. sentencing tweet was. And part of why that matters is because even though the military judge adjudicated the sentence, it had to be approved by the convening authority. And so it was still a serious concern that the president's tweet. Right. Would- the chain of command clearly says this is terrible. And, and so – that seems a little bit textbook. Right. Um, now, there was this big open question about whether Article 37 of the Uniform Code even applies to the president because the president's not, quote, subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, unquote. Right. Um, the Army Court sort of ducked that by basically relying on the rules for courts martial, um, which do apply to the president, yeah. um, and said, you know, it's a violation of RCM 104, whether or not it's a violation of Article 37. Yeah. Um, the majority held that notwithstanding the violation, there was reason to doubt that it actually had a material impact on the proceeding. Right. That seemed quite right to me. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, there's a lot of conversation to have about harmless error doctrines in this sure. context. I mean, accepting harmless error doctrines yes. as such, yeah. it seems like the right analysis. I think. I mean, I think that if you if you don't look at any of the prior statements, if you just look at the day of sentencing tweet in isolation, I think that's right. I'm not sure that I would have, if I were in that position, looked at it in isolation. Um, Judge Ewing, in a really, I think, thoughtful and interesting opinion, concurring in part and dissenting in part, basically says, I just I disagree about the harmless error part because of the pressure that any convening authority would have felt and will feel going forward knowing that this is out there. So what Ewing says is like normally in the average case, if there's a concern, you transfer to a different convening authority because now the new convening authority will be outside the chain of command from whoever the bad actor was the first time. Where the bad actor is the president, you can't do that. So what is the remedy? So the remedy for him was going to be to sort of, it wasn't to dismiss. It was going to be to basically um, go back and sort of, you know, take certain things off the table. Um, you know, sort Meaning of, what? Um, I think so, remove the ability of the court martial to dishonorably discharge him. Because if you had done things differently procedurally at the beginning, that wouldn't have been an available sentence. 
right? So so leave the result intact, but 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 scale down part of the sentence. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's, yeah. I, I don't mean to get lost in the details. Sure. Of I think what, to me the larger point is here is a major, here is a, a unanimous panel of active duty army officers, right? Saying the president committed UCI, like that's a big deal. It is. I think it's it's it was clear when he did it. That I mean, a he doesn't care. Trump doesn't care. Well, um, but, but it was clear when he did it that. Agreed. It, it, and just for this, for the sake of people who don't have context for this, it's not. If you just sort of abstract this out a little bit, you say, hey, if if someone in the military chain of command, which the president as commander in chief absolutely is, if someone in the chain of command of the commanding authority, immediately upon hearing about an, an action that's then going to come up for review, expresses really loudly and clearly a very definite, specific opinion on what should and shouldn't happen here. If there is such a thing as unlawful command influence, that certainly gets you into the discussion. Now, there are some who would say, I'd rather UCI be confined to situations where there's actually an effort to try to make something happen, a, a communication, an outreach, as opposed to sort of poisoning the well more atmospherically the way that Trump did. Um, but, but as long as you're willing to accept that there could be that broader poisoning of the well, this seems like actually a pretty textbook example. The president himself had been told, you could tell from his earlier comments, right. he knew he'd been told you're not supposed to comment about pending cases. Um, and he knew he wasn't supposed to do it. But of course, as we all know, he just can't help himself. And, and I think so. So to me, I mean, the real headline here is that. Now, I, I, I have no doubt that uh, Bergdahl will appeal to the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Um, it's a discretionary petition. It's not a mandatory case. What will be interesting to me is if the Court of Appeals takes Bergdahl's appeal, will, it, will the government then turn around and cross-petition um, on the on the sort of, you know... On whether it was UCI. On whether it was UCI in the first place. Um, but, you know, suffice to say, this is going to be... A, the, put, to, just to, to, to unwind a bit of the story, part of why Congress in the Uniform Code of Military Justice in 1950 created an Article I court staffed by civilians was entirely because of UCI, right? Was actually entirely because it was worried about the ability of military judges to fully and uh, and and adequately handle UCI claims. Yeah. And so, you know, CAF is uniquely situated, I think, to, you know, take a longer view on this. And I, and I think we'll be interested to see if they take, you know, they, they could they could deny review and then yeah. the case is done because you can't petition to the Supreme Court from that point. But I, I hope and I, I hope, I'll say I hope that CAP actually takes this case regardless of what it thinks the answer is because of its importance. I, I think I wouldn't mind them taking it if they're going to reach basically the same result because I think this is the right result. And if, if they want to put it in a more visible place by taking it and basically saying, yep, that does count, but this is not actually going to change the result in this particular case, I could be on board with that. Um, all right. Do we want to say some casebook stuff before we get frivolous? I'll just, just really briefly because I get I've, more frivolous. Um, more frivolous. I was going to say this is pretty frivolous. Um, I've been talking about myself a lot today, and I feel weird about that. But this is great. One more. One more shameless plug. Once more into the breach, my friend. Once more into the self promotion breach. Um, so you know, as, as I think folks know, um, one of my ongoing projects is I'm co-editor of the Aspen Publishers National Security Law and Counterterrorism Law Casebooks, the former now in its sixth edition, the latter in its third. Bobby, as you know well, these books have rather expanded over they're, the years. They're big books? They're big books. Um, I've got a copy of each version over time, and it's impressive. fun to look back at the early ones. Oh, gosh. I can't even imagine. Um, so suffice to say, the, the last time we did a new edition was 2016. We're actually in the midst of doing the new editions 
for 2020, but that didn't spare us of the need to put out a supplement to deal with all of the developments in national security law over the last year. So how many pages did you say the thing is? So the thing clocked in at 279 pages. Font-wise and page content-wise, is that similar to 200-something uh, casebook pages, or is the smaller size... Uh, for the non-law students, the casebook supplements tend to be printed in, in smaller format. Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot either way. And as the, and as the, the word count is I mean, a lot. I mean, my co-authors, you know, Steve Dykus, Bill Banks, Peter Ravenhampton, we all did a t- we all did a ton of work on our chapters. I, I had the the privilege of being the assembler. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like being the youngest justice. You got to go get the door, get the and coffee. And be on the cafeteria yeah. committee. Yeah. Um, so you, you're on the casebook cafeteria committee. I really am. What was it evenly spread across the different chapters, or was the bulk of that work coming from one or two particular zones? Well, so I mean, you know, it's it's iterative. So you know, a lot of this was building on last year's supplement, which was about 200 pages. Um, and I think the biggest changes from last. So you know, to go back since 2016, I mean, there have been a lot of changes. Oh, yeah. Um, I think the biggest shift from last year to this year is there's now a really fantastic new discussion of um, appropriations in the national security space. Oh, that's useful. Um, apropos the border wall litigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's there's a fur, there's a more expansive discussion of the National Emergencies Act and sort of. <laughs> yeah, I, w- um, I might imagine. So you know, I mean, there's obviously other stuff as well. I mean, I, you know, I I couldn't resist talking about the denouement and Al Nashiri. Oh, of course. Um, Doe versus Mattis, of course, got some substantial attention. But I think the to me the single best. Um, addition to this year's supplement vis-a-vis last year's is the really detailed discussion of the border wall litigation, including um, a really nicely excerpted version of the Ninth Circuit's decision in denying a stay in the Sierra Club case, which came out on July 3rd. Yeah, that's so, some hot off the know, presses stuff I mean, right there. How many, you know, how many case books can turn around and say, you know, for a supplement that had to go to the printer on July, what did we went on, what, um, oh gosh, last... Friday. So um, for something that had to go to the printer on, I can't remember what day it is anymore, July 12th, right? To have like a detailed, you know, excerpt of a case that was signed on July 3rd. Come on, man. That's pretty awesome. Um, well, to, to make you feel less bad about self-promotion, I'll, I'll do some myself. Please. Um, as you know, I, I've been developing course materials that are their case books, but they're not conventional case books because I'm not aspiring to get them into print between hard covers. Uh, the goal for your my, wise, my friend. Well, yeah, it, it it comes with pros and cons. It's a lot easier to deal with, and uh, it is it is edited about as much as anyone pays for it, which is nothing. Um, so there's a lot of lot of slipperiness and shoddiness in the materials that I'm about to talk about, but they're out there and they'll soon be posted in a way that anyone who wants them can just download them as a PDF. One is uh, the. I guess I'll call this an e-casebook. It's the e-casebook for my cybersecurity course. This started off as a syllabus that then became more of the syllabus plus the readings or some of the readings or the questions presented. Um, This document, along with my syllabus slash ebook for my intelligence law course, both are going to be posted on Lawfare as part of a new resource section we're creating, which ultimately will have, I hope, a a bunch of free casebook type materials. Um, These aren't competitive in any direct sense with what you guys are doing with the Aspen book, which is wonderful because these are rifle shot in terms of the scope. Um, If you're interested in cybersecurity law and policy and want a broad survey of just that topic, then the ebook that I'm doing in that area will be very, very relevant for you. Um, There's a version of that you can already actually get if you just search Lawfare for, for my name and the idea of a cybersecurity casebook or something like that. 
Uh, and then the intelligence law one, which has just been refined over the last semester, um, I'll probably put it out there maybe in a couple of months. Um, I mean, we're talking about 250 or so pages. There's there's no click-through to get to the readings. All the readings are embedded within it, all the questions, a lot of narrative context, just like a regular case book. And f- so for people who really want to understand all the NSA stuff and some of the CIA stuff and don't want to go into other things, well, that's all there too. So uh, with that, let's wrap up the the non-frivolous the stuff. Less frivolous. And let's get more frivolous. So uh, uh, by the way, we're at 107, so so much for 108. Damn it. So close. So we, we had promised that we were going to sort of do a, a, a sort of a, a specific Star Trek The Next Generation episode review. Um, I don't know how we seized on that, but here we are. Yeah. Um, and the episode we picked was was the Pegasus. That, well, okay, what's your bottom line? My bottom line? Um, my bottom line is that it is, it is completely not credible that in possession of the technology to not just cloak your ships, but to actually cloak them in a manner that allows you to go through physical matter, that the Federation would just be like, oh, you know what? This is a violation of the Treaty of Algeron. Our bad. And we'll stick with it. Is this an exam- Is this like a constructivist episode where, where belief in the power of the treaty and uh, interstellar law, I guess we shall say. Interstellar, interstellar law. law. Like Star Trek Six, right? You yeah. violate interstellar law. It's a... Uh, is this sort of a utopian vision of the law triumphant in the Federation just, and, uh, and yes. dominating the realist interests with a transformative tech, literally transformative technology Ooh. being being abandoned for the sake of the prior treaty? Yes. And you're not buying it? No. It, well, of course, Star Trek is deeply utopian on, on many dimensions. So. But, but there, there are levels of utopianism, and, uh, and this strikes me as, as... As a national security law person, you're just like, this would never happen? I mean, so, you know, you've created a, an incredibly powerful and proprietary technology that gives you a clear advantage over everybody, right? That would allow you to engage in insanely um, effective intelligence missions, right? That would allow you to have incredibly effective defensive operations. You can send a cloaked ship anywhere in the universe, perhaps with unmanned ship with just a bomb on board. You could destroy anything. You could monitor anything. You can do whatever you want. Even if you weren't militant about it, right? Like Even if you weren't looking at this as a weapon. It's like the, the Genesis device, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's not a weapon, right? The capabilities are there. And so it just strikes me that this is such a... The, the existence of the phased cloak, which of course is the you know, plot is the centerpiece of the plot, right? In yeah. in in the Pegasus would be such a game changer technologically that I just I can't, you know, yes, Captain Picard is an immensely moral person and he always does the right thing, but Well, okay, so this gets to the other bit, which is they try to treat it as if there's a divide within their governance structure between people from intelligence. Right. Those intelligence. are the bad guys, right? They throw intelligence <laughs> under the bus. That's part of why I like Totally that. typical so, deal. So part of why I chose this so you got a, you got a you got a Federation rogue elephant uh, type plot line. And then once the good, proper, regular military folks find out, they're like, oh, this is horrible. You know, Court-martial all them. not military. I'm contractually well, obligated to say that. Well, then what's with the court-martial that well, they then right. convene? And what's you with say. all the ranks and all that? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, they're definitely military. They're just, you know, they're, they're a pretty peaceful military, but still. But it's like an enterprise when they have the Makos on board, and, like, there's this whole thing about how, like, you know, it's weird to have the military on board our ship. Yeah, there's, there's some, there's some uh, how do we say, uh, cognitive dissonance in some of the, the writing on those <laughs> yeah, shows, perhaps. Enough. All right, so so you've got Admiral Pressman, who I, I love both the – there's nothing better than the character of the jerky admiral. He's 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 kind of Will's buddy, but he's kind of a jerk. But best of all, it's Terry Quinn. It's Locke from Lost. 
<laughs> He's great. I, I, I don't know if you were a Lost fan, but... I really wasn't. Okay, well, that's a Sorry. shame. Sorry. If, if you liked Lost, there's a good chance you loved all the... Because Locke was a particularly interesting character. And so whenever Terry Quinn pops up, it's pretty fun. Um, he plays jerky Admiral Pressman. Um, it, it was a show that, like, a lot of episodes over time on that series kind of puts Riker very very explicitly in sort of the uh, the the mentee role right the he's he's always in the boyish cast even even after he throws the beard on he's still uh, he still is always in that position but he's torn between his two dads right Picard pulling in one direction pressman the other that all is pretty fun um, interesting thing so like a lot of Star Trek this is written by Ronald Moore um, Ronald Moore of course, uh, a key, the key writer for Battlestar Galactica's reboot, and uh, that made me think that I wonder if uh, you know is it coincidence that they chose the name Pegasus? Because of course, one of the great right, parts of the original <laughs> and rebooted Battlestar Galactica it's is the Battlestar the, Pegasus, Battlestar, the second Battlestar. Um, you know, hats off to old Lloyd Bridges, <laughs> uh, the original commander of the original Pegasus, who picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. It really did. Uh, but then that led me down the rabbit hole to another connection. So, of course, when Battlestar Galactica rebooted and they did a Pegasus plotline, they switched from uh, Admiral Kane was no longer Lloyd Bridges, obviously, uh, became uh, Michelle, Michelle Forbes. Forbes. Yes. Oh, Michelle Forbes. Who I, also. I, 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 lo- I love me some Michelle then Forbes. Then you know that she was on Star Trek as Ensign Rowe. Ensign Rowe. So uh, interesting connection there. Uh, and there's something I just saw her in something, and I was like, "Wait, that's Admiral Kane slash." No, she's in Rowe. lots of good stuff. Uh, she's she in 24 a little bit. Um, there's probably others. Okay, so the killing, pretty good overall, I guess. Um, so not I, definitely I, not like you know one of the top episodes, but I like it it's because it's got it's got chain of command. Right. It's got it's got the this idea of a rogue intelligence. Uh, Plotline. Clearly, the Federation has weak oversight of covert action programs. That's uh, like Section 31 in DS9. Well, so here's just to get lawyerly about it. Uh, so how'd they fund that thing? There's no way that was cheap to build. The S&T, all that. They, they clearly had some kind of black budget. Well, but the, how was there no oversight wait, in Federation governance wait, to second. know they were doing there, there's this? A, there's another problem here, right? I mean, not to be a plot hole spotter, right? But, you know... I can't imagine that in the future, when they build a prototype or something, they send it on its way and don't keep copies of the plans. Yeah, right. So that was the only copy we had. No <laughs> one knows how they did this. Right, Shoot. Right. We built this amazing, you know, game-changing technology, and we put the plans on the prototype it's like, ship. It's like, what was the uh, what was the knockoff of Top Gun? Hot Shots. Yes. Yeah, and like, then Hot Shots Part Two. And, and so the the kid's like, oh, everything's going great. He's getting his plans. Like, and by the way, I've also solved the real story of the JFK assassination. I've got it right. Here and I'll tell you when I get back from this mission. <laughs> I mean, there's a degree oh, of that great. going on here, right? Like, you know, you really need to tell me that, like, until you, until you physically put your hands on the prototype, you couldn't figure out what you had done. No one knew. They killed all the people that did it. I mean, you know. Um, so also, I mean, I, I guess right. The problem is, it's a thoroughly entertaining episode as long as yeah. you don't think too hard about sure. it. Sure, which is you know, of course, that that's fair yeah, game. No, 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 but like, but to me, the truly great next generation episodes are the ones that actually they hold up. Get only better when you think about it. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, was like, this one not so much? I mean, like the inner light, right? I mean, the inner light just gets better and better the more you think about it, right? Yesterday's Enterprise, the more you think about it, the better it gets. Well, I don't want to bag on Ron more too much because a lot of the stuff he does is great or did uh, really held up. In that way, but this to me strikes me as like this is like an action movie version of, of yeah. You just need plot needs to do this. Um, plot needs to do that. Also, Data says at one point, you know, I have no, um, you know, there does not appear to be any indicate any record of a starship ever going this far into. It's like really, dude. 
You've never taken a starship into an asteroid. I have a hard time. Hey, no one's that. ever done that. I know. No one's ever done that <laughs> ever. That's awesome. All right. Well, uh, what should we do in the future for frivolity? Any should we do more of these? I don't know. I don't know, listeners. I don't. I don't feel like we uh, ended up, you know, drawing forth a lot of listener enthusiasm. There's some commentary, but I'm not sure it warrants. In case doing you it. haven't noticed, and judging by the Twitter reactions, yeah, you haven't. haven't. Yeah, there were definitely a few folks who were game. We appreciate you. We love you for it. Um, but send us more ideas. More frivolousness. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm trying to think. It is Football season is nigh upon us, but people don't like... The, I, we, we do a little bit too much sports ball frivolity. I, I don't think we do too much of it because I'm always happy to do it. But <laughs> Also, football uh, season is going to be deeply depressing. The Longhorns are going to be great. Are you doing like a New York Giants thing there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. Well, pro, pro sports, we can set that aside. Um, why don't College we let it go for now by just telling the listeners if you've got good uh, suggestions for things we should watch and or read and comment on. Yeah, Karen, Karen and I are almost done with uh, Parks and Rec. Um, we started watching this Amazon Prime uh, British show, Fleabag. Um, Fleabag. It, it, it's it's very British. Okay, that sounds that sounds interesting. Um, I wa- we watched a, a Netflix original, the Adam Sandler Jennifer Aniston uh, murder mystery. Oh, how is that? Uh, it's fun. It's exactly you know what the trailer <laughs> suggests it would be, which is it's 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 shot in appealing places. It has hilariousness of the Adam Sandler variety that keeps happening. Jennifer Aniston's great. Um, I think it's definitely if you need something lighthearted, um, it's fun up to a point. All right. Um, Meanwhile, I'll just sit on the couch and keep working while Karen watches her Real Housewives reunions. There you go. Um, this is, that that could be a frivolity topic, right? You know, real ha- ranking the Real Housewives in order. I am. Preposterous. I, I will. Admit, I, I will watch a lot of goofy stuff. The the reality TV show stuff that's other you, you, than you like mean the scripted TV show. Stuff? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, this the scripted reality shows. I just can't go there. Um, although apparently I'm missing out on some pretty fun stuff, I realize that. So the, the way usually, so Karen, Karen has a rule that I'm not usually allowed to work while we're watching something together, and the exception yep. is Real Housewives because it's just so stupid. And so what'll happen is I'll be working and I'll look up and say, "Wait, what did Luann just do?" Well, I don't know. I, she's got good taste, so if she thinks it's entertaining, I'm willing to give it a, a one look. But I'm afraid to go down that rabbit hole because well, I bet it's a hell of a rabbit well, hole. She's not listening. Oh, we'll see about that. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I think we actually will be back on our regular schedule next week. Yep, I'm around. Unless you have another vacation you haven't told me about. No, no, no. Nothing but work. Uh, indeed. It's getting to be that time. The, our first day of classes is what? Uh, don't, don't, say, don't, don't say it. Don't say it. It's not real if you don't say it. We've got work to do. We have work to do. Uh, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, I have nothing else to say other than I can't believe it's already July 17th. Stay safe out there. Adios.